Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. We're going to read uh, the Bible verse for today, which is from Titus 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient and unfit for doing anything good. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you for who you are. We always thank you for your character. Thank you that you, um, that you are Lord of the universe and that we can throw ourselves at your feet. Uh, that you, you've chosen not to hide yourself, but you've revealed yourself in Scripture. That we don't have to make things up about you, but you've, you, we, we get to know you through your word. Help us to see you today. Help us to um, apply your word and help us to be soft. Uh, Spirit, do a work in us as we talk about our, um, your, uh, your Holy Spirit-inspired letter to, uh, to Titus. Um, yeah, do a work in us, Lord. Have your way with us. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Um, here at City Light North Adelaide, uh, if you've been here in the last two or so months, we've been in this topical sermon series called We Need to Talk. Um, however, when we aren't in a topical series, um, for the majority of the time, we are going through books of the Bible. We do expository preaching here. So we go line by line, precept by precept, through books of the Bible because, as I said before, God's, it's God's Word. That's how we get to know who God is. It's a, it's a book about God. If you're new here or if it's your first time here, we are unashamed 
about Scripture and it's being and holding it to it as our highest authority because in it are the life-giving words inspired by God. Uh, so for the next three weeks, we're going to do a mini-series, three weeks, a mini-series on Titus, the letter to Titus. And we've, in, we've called this series Healthy Churches, Healthy Disciples. Um, if you're on our communication channel with Slack, uh, Jacko has put us up an informative PDF giving us some background information. I encourage you, if you have not read that, please read it because I think it will really help you understand where we're coming, where we're coming on tonight. Um, and I will go through some of this background information today, but I, again, please read through it. If you have not read through Titus before, it is only three chapters. It takes less than 10 minutes by audiobook. I would encourage you to read it for the next three weeks, just read it once a day, once a day, because it's, it is, again, God's word to us. Um, so things to know about Titus, Titus is one of three pastoral epistles. Pastoral because he was addressing people who had pastoral oversight over churches. And this is important because if we try to read this letter as if it was written directly to us, we're going to miss out on the, on the intent of what the author was trying to say. And we might misinterpret what this means for us in a 21st century Western context. And although the Bible is a book for us and there is instruction for us, we must remember that it is not directly about us. It's about God. If you were here for our Unstoppable series in Acts, we were introduced to a guy named Paul. And Paul was the, the guy who wrote this letter to Titus. Paul was the apostle to the, uh, to the Gentiles and was previously um, was persecuting God's church. And not simply in a, uh, we'll ban you from your rugby contract, freedom, kind of, freedom of speech kind of way, not that kind of persecution, but was actually tracing, hunting, and straight up murdering God's people. And then Paul gets radically saved by the gospel when he encounters Jesus on the Damascus Road, and then he starts to immediately start preaching about Jesus. And through that, we, that's where we left off in Acts in our Unstoppable series, but Paul does several missionary journeys, and he plants several churches, and he has a close mate, or also this mentee named Titus, and he leaves him in Crete. And Crete's this island in the southern part of the Aegean Sea near Greece, Things you know, need to know about Crete, um, Cretans weren't exactly known for their honesty. <laughs> In fact, the Greek philosopher Epimenides wrote that all Cretans are liars, and Paul actually quotes this in his, um, in his uh, first chapter in, in Titus 1. Um, the society wasn't characteristically honest, and in terms of the church of Crete, like many, um, like many churches in the early church days, uh, it was infiltrated by false teachers. It's not exactly a sign of healthy church, right? In fact, the book of Titus, in the book of Titus, you find out there is dissension and tearing apart of communities because of this false teaching. This letter, this past, uh, pastoral epistle too, is for Titus specifically, but like many letters back in the day, it was actually also read out to the, the churches. And if you've personally read through Titus, you might have found that it's very instructional. It might be cut and dry, very matter of the fact. It's very straight to the point. Um, but in our reading today of Titus 1, on casual looking, it just sounds like it's about church leadership stuff. And yes, we will be talking about eldership and what that means. And it has some direct relevance to us because we are a new church that's kind of finding our feet and we are developing our own eldership as well. Um, 
But here in Titus 1, I believe that God wants us to see three things. So if you're a note taker, three things. First one, firstly, I think Titus, in Titus 1, God wants us to see that gospel truth informs and transforms its believers. Secondly, I think in Titus 1, gospel-shaped elders build up God's church. And thirdly, gospel-shaped elders protect God's church by rebuking false teaching. We'll quickly go over that again. Gospel truth informs and transforms its believers. Gospel-shaped elders build up God's church. And gospel-shaped elders protect God's church by rebuking false teaching. We're good? We're strapped in? Ready to go? Crickets. That's fine. <laughs> Great. So let's go. Uh, the letter to Titus starts off in typical Pauline fashion. Paul often gives like a mini thesis at the start of his letters, qualifying who he is and the authority with which he is speaking. And we've called this mini series on Titus Healthy Church, Healthy Disciples. Why? Because in the very first verse, if you have your open Bibles open, in the very first verse, it says, Paul, you can see Paul's express purpose in writing this letter. It was not simply a duty thing for him as an apostle, but the fact was he wrote this letter to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Verse 1. Again, let's move to my first point. Gospel truth informs and transforms its believers. And I really want us to notice this because this motivation for the instructions that Paul was about to um, lay out here in, in these larger sections um, Paul wanted the churches in Crete to grow intellectually about their understanding of God because Paul has reminded them that God has chosen them, that he's elected them. If it were not for God's sovereign grace, his electing power, if it wasn't for God's Holy Spirit who made, them, made the blind able to see and the spiritually deaf able to hear, then, we would, then they would never believe or accept him as Lord, as Jesus as Lord, as Lord and Savior. But the good news is that God did elect His believers. God did choose His believers, and this is great news for us who are believers. Because if it's God that one, if it is God that who, if it is God who elects His people, and if it is Him who says, "I will bring about to completion the the work that I started." And knowing that in verse 2 it says that our faith is in the hope of eternal life, we can be sure that if we are in Christ, we are His and forever His. We are His and forever His. We can't lose that. Now, this isn't the time to talk about electional free will, and there are definitely churches who will argue this, this, these, these two concepts to death. And they will argue against this doctrine of election because it can be it can feel divisive, and we don't have time to necessarily go into this topic because this is not the thrust of the text. But we can plainly see here that God's election is actually very very comforting. That we can uh, we are safely secure in Him. That nothing can separate us from the love of God. No, not no height, nor depth, nor principalities, no powers. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. We are in God's mighty grip. And God is not only resolved just to save us, but he is resolved to redeem and to restore us, to be perfect like we were originally meant to be. 
to grow into godliness is God's mission. God has promised this. God is faithful to his promises. And this promise, especially to the Cretan society, would run contrary to everything they know. Remember how we talked about Paul saying that Cretans are liars, all, all Cretans are liars? If you were a Cretan, if you see someone say, like, I'm going to promise something, you, you feel pretty skeptical, right? You feel pretty skeptical say, if, if you live in a society where everyone lies and say, you trust me, trust me, trust me, right? Let alone a, a religious organization. And in our culture, sadly, that mistrust towards religious institutions is, is there as well. And I think rightly so, to some degree. You follow the Royal Commission, you hear stories of child abuse and stories of embezzling funds and lacking integrity. Man, like, to, to, before preaching today, I, w- I, was, I saw the Book of Mormon, and it's, it's from the creators of South Park, uh, and it's making fun of Mormons, but realistically, it's actually a cultural commentary. It's a satirical cultural commentary on institutionalized religion. And I'm not saying that you should go see it. It's not really sanctifying for your soul. Trust me, I saw it. And I was, <laughs> Some of it, I was, I was like watching, I'm like, this is, this is, this is kind of confronting, bro. Um, but that's what our culture thinks about Christians, right? There's no really, there's no real reason to trust God. You just need to be a good person, right? But we can trust God. Like it says here in verse 2, because God did come through with this promise before the beginning of time. That promise that he laid at the beginning of time. What was that promise? That the Lamb of God, that Jesus would come and die and, on behalf of his people. God is faithful to his promises and that's fulfilled in the coming, the life, and the work, life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is more than enough reason to trust God at his word. And what Paul is illustrating to Titus is the acceptance of this truth. And the relationship, and and uh, Paul is um, accepting us, um, Paul is telling us to accept this truth because it transforms us. It transforms us into the people that God wants us to be. It compels us to do the things that God wants us to do when we accept this truth. In Paul's case, as he says in verse 3, He was obedient to the command of our Savior in that he was specifically entrusted to preach the word. Paul gets saved. The knowledge of who Jesus is transforms him, and and he takes on the command of God to preach to the Gentiles. And what does this, well, you might be thinking, what does this mean, Tran? What does this mean I have to go out and preach like Paul? Well, for some of us, maybe that might be the case. Maybe not. This passage isn't telling you the next 15 steps of your life. But what we do see from Paul's example here is that he is transformed in his godliness and character to the point that he was unreserved in his obedience to the mission that God had for him. And that must be the same for us. When we have knowledge of the truth, relationship with the truth, relationship with Jesus, when we have that, It is authenticated by our growing godliness and obedience to the good works that God has put in front of us to do. This is how we know if we've understood grace. It drives us to want to do what God has given us to do. 
If we grow in our knowledge and relationship with Christ, we will grow in our glad submission to his will, to his purposes, for his glory and for our good and for our joy. Because the gospel truth informs who we are and transforms its believers. This begs the question then, how do we grow in this knowledge of the truth? And this can be a puzzling question for us in 2019. Heck, it's puzzling. It's, it's been puzzling since the ancient times. As Pontius Pilate put it, what is truth? The idea of my truth and your truth isn't, isn't a recent phenomenon uttered by Oprah. But it extends back to the 5th century BC where there's a guy named Protagoras. He says, what is true for you is, what is true for you is true for you, and what is true for me is true for me. Does that not sound familiar? Now, not not to get into a philosophical argument, because we don't have time for that, but ultimately, we know this intuitively and experientially. We humans get stuff wrong all the time, right? Right? We get stuff all wrong all the time. Um, If you know my house, if you've been to the transient, like, it's, um, that's why the people call it, it's not actually that bad, it's not actually that massive, but... um, my parents do daycare, and they have like a little toilet in the in in the in the back. And I I've been living in this house for like 14 years now, and I I've used the toilet I think it's like once because it's just really out of the way, and I always thought it was small. I always thought it was super small because it's like well it's a kiddie sized toilet right surely, and I've I've believed that for 14 years of my life, and so Delphine comes over one day, and I'm like hey. This toilet is small. It's just for you, right? <laughs> no, and she's, so she sits on it, and it's like, no, it's not, it's not small. It's his normal size. I'm like, I've lived in this house, bro. I know this is a small toilet. So it's like, no, it feels pretty normal. So we go to the, another toilet in the, in the house. She sits on it, and it's like, this is, it's the exact, it feels exactly the same. What are you talking about, bro? <laughs> and so like... Okay, let's settle this. Let me settle this. Let's get a tape measure out and measure it out. And so we measure out the little kid's toilet, and then we measure out the normal size toilet, and it turns out it's exactly the same thing. And I was like, no, this is, what is going on here? This is, this is, this is wrong. This, you've, you've measured it wrong. We do it again. It's, it's still the same, right? The both toilets are exactly the same size. And I thought the kid's toilet was small. Right? And I've, I've known this for, I've known this intellectually here for like 14 years. And so I, my mum comes home from, uh, she's been overseas in, in the States for a while, and she comes home and I ask her, like, hey, is, is, the, is the kid's toilet any, like, any smaller? I was like, no, what, what made you think that? <laughs> my life's been alive for the last 14 years. <laughs> but I, I passionately knew that. I, I thought, this toilet is, has to be smaller. I know it with all my might, but objectively speaking, it was not. That was not the case. And this is the same with Jesus, right? If we can have ideas about who Jesus is, but if, it doesn't, if our subjective understanding of him does not match up with the reality of who he is, then we're done for. We must, our, our perception, our understanding of the truth must line up with the way, with, with how God has revealed himself in Scripture. Otherwise, our, our lofty thinking is just, just our imagination, right? Our God in our head is just literally an, a figure of our imagination. Might as well be the sp- flying spaghetti monster. The truth, of Je- 
The truth of Jesus, who, Jesus, who is the author of all truth, must be held by us Christians if we are to grow in our knowledge of God. And Titus in Crete, right, he had this issue as well. And Paul writes to him a solution. We'll read the next uh, couple of verses in, in Titus 1, verses 5 to 9. It says this. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might be... Uh, that, was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of, wild, of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Paul tells Titus that the solution to encouraging the believers in sound doctrine, the solution to encouraging disciples in the truth, the solution to teaching the church of Jesus the realities of the gospel is what? is by having qualified gospel-shaped elders in a local church body actively involved in their church context. Which leads me to point two, that gospel-shaped elders are to build up God's church with the truth. Healthy churches have elders that build up healthy disciples. Healthy churches have elders that build up healthy disciples. Now, I'm going I'm to warn you here. This is a bit of a disclaimer. This is a big disclaimer here. This bit coming up. If you're new here, if you're new to relatively new to Christianity, or if you're not even Christian, you, there might be some pushback on what I'm about to say here. Some people might say that you aren't pushing hard enough. Some people will say you've pushed way too far here, Tran. But what I believe and what City Light Church North Adelaide believes is Scripture is putting out forth here that Paul is establishing a pattern for eldership in the church. Paul is setting up a picture here of what leading and governing a church body should look like. And it should be through a plurality of qualified, qualified, gospel-shaped men. Some people will call this the complementarian view of eldership, or more simply put, complementarianism. And, and, and for some of us, this might, this might grate against us a little bit because we, if, we've, if you've grown up in church and you've had church, other church experiences that are a bit different, you may have seen a woman take this office, office of leadership, of eldership in your church. And this other kind of other view, major viewpoint is, within Christian orthodoxy is something called egalitarianism. So we have these two things, complementarianism and egalitarianism. Now, those are two big words, but hear me out. Here at City Light North Adelaide, we want to be humble in our posture, yet unapologetic about how we believe Paul instructs not just Titus and Timothy in the New Testament, but to us as we reserve the office of eldership for qualified, gospel-shaped men. And it's not the men part I want to really focus about. It's the qualified and gospel-shapedness. And the oversimplistic answer is because we see it in Scripture and we hold Scripture as our highest authority. That's the oversimplistic answer. I don't want to get into the heaps of nuances here because this, this, 
this topic is at least several lectures long. I don't think you want to be here for that. The way we, in which we read the Bible, interpret the Bible, also known as a hermeneutic, that hermeneutic that we use at Sydney North Adelaide, if we read the Bible in this consistent way, liter- literarily, not literally, literarily, meaning that we consider the text's genre, its audience, its history, and its purpose, with this hermeneutic, it informs us that this transcultural instruction is for God's church today. And it's interesting that according to John MacArthur, the the capital C church has largely accepted this doctrine for the majority of the last two millennia, until really about the 1960s. Now, why that's the case, that's speculation, but I think it's something that might have something to do with the cultural narrative of the times. Now, I could put forth the case for complementarianism versus egalitarianism, but we would have to, again, unpack heaps of scripture um, if you want more questions, if, if this raises, this will definitely raise questions, but if you are wondering where to go to understand this a bit more, I would encourage you to look on the Gospel Coalition website, or um, if you're looking about, thinking about gender roles, look at the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood website. Because, um, as I said, we can't cover all of this in a 30 to 40 minute talk. And I don't want to pretend that I know everything here, because there are much smarter people who have wrapped their heads, who are wrapping their heads around this. And I get it, our culture is all about gender equality, equal opportunity. Let's get away from the patriarchy, etc., etc. Again, we'll look at those two different, two different websites. I would encourage you to do that. And I'm not saying that if you claim to be Christian or hold an egalitarian point of view, that you're not a Christian. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, as Christians, we must be charitable as we discuss this issue with other Christians. Because this is what we call a secondary issue of faith. Both sides of the argument of complementarianism and egalitarianism will argue passionately from Scripture and come to different conclusions. And I have friends who love Jesus, who believe in the atoning work of his life, death and resurrection, who believe in the Trinitarian God of the Bible and hold an egalitarian point of view on this topic. But the thing is, your belief in this particular doctrine does not save you. Your belief in who Jesus is does. Your belief in this doctrine does not save you. Your belief in Jesus does, right? Having said this massive disclaimer, now let's, let's get into the text. Paul was instructing here for Titus to establish men as leaders as lo- um, in local churches of Crete, and not just any men, but men who were blameless, in the, firstly, blameless in the home, men who were blameless in character, and men who were blameless in doctrine. Now, when Paul says blameless, it doesn't necessarily mean absolutely complete perfection. There's only one perfect man, that, one, that was Jesus. Paul, what Paul means is that without fault. And what he means by, he doesn't mean without fault, sorry. He means that um, by blameless, he means that uh, if the man is of good reputation, so much so that an accusation cannot be made against him. So let's look a bit closely at this. Verse 6 says this, An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. When Paul talks about being blameless in the home, Paul wants Titus to find men who demonstrate gospel fruitfulness in their marriages. In these marriages, Christ. Um, in, the mar- in, in marriage, as, you, as many of you married folk would know, 
we are, men are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? He sacrificially gave himself and died for her. We are to find men who love their husbands in this way, to put their preferences second, to sacrificially love their wives. These are the kinds of men that, that, that Titus wants, no, that Paul wants. And Paul wants these men to demonstrate gospel fruitfulness in bringing up their children in love and instruction of the Lord as well. And I guess in the home, these relationships are going to be probably the most honest because they, for, the, for the elder because the elder spends the most time with them, right? Paul was saying to Titus that we'll be able to see how deep the gospel goes into the lives of these men and because we'll be able to see it in the most intimate of their relationships. In verses 7 and 8, he talks about blameless in char- being blameless in character. It says this, since an, overseer manages not, since an overseer manages God's household, he must, be, uh, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, one who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Paul is telling Titus here to look for elders who demonstrate Christ-likeness with their lives as they will be overseeing the church. To build a healthy church, elders have to show maturity of faith and in holy living as evidences of being gripped and transformed by the gospel. Like I said before, the gospel informs and transforms its believers. Especially when you think about it, if you're dealing with people, Elders are to care and protect for God's people. They're to shepherd Jesus' flock. When you're concerned and caring for God's people, you kind of need to not be overbearing and quick-tempered. But also, you need to live a life where people can look up to you and can imitate you as you are imitating Christ. This is not because we're just conforming to a list of rules or requirements, but because the gospel has shaped these elders' lives, these men, the lives of these men. And it's interesting that Paul doesn't look at skills or worldly qualifications. No, he looks at how the gospel has shaped their character. And lastly, Paul looks at men who are blameless in doctrine, that they must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine. Paul instructs men who have held on to, uh, instructs Titus to find men who have hold, held on to teaching well. Christian men who know Christ, who are gripped by his love and grace, and know, know his character. That we need those Titus, Paul needs, Paul was instructing Titus to find these men so they can encourage others who, who need this truth as well. Not so they can parade about and be a smarty pants but to, to encourage them and to admonish them to build them up in the knowledge of the Lord. Paul is indicating to us here that as part of a healthy, flourishing church, part of that is the leadership of a plurality of men who have been gripped by the good news of Jesus. Healthy churches have elders that build up healthy disciples. But the elders of a healthy church don't just build up disciples. They also refute those who oppose sound doctrine, which means it leads me to point three. Gospel-shaped elders protect God's church by rebuking false teaching. Um, if we read uh, verses 10 to 11, it says this. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. 
They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. And that for the sake and that for the sake of dishonest gain. As I mentioned earlier, in the church in Crete was infiltrated by false teachers, right? And they were causing dissension amongst God's people. So you have these Cretan false teachers who are causing an absolute ruckus. And they were actually also making money off of it. As for teaching, as for the teaching, we don't know what it specifically is, but we know that Paul was not keen on this thing called the circumcision group. If, you've, if you know anything about Galatians or other, other epistles as well, Paul is not very keen on this circumcision group. Essentially, Paul, this circumcision group is putting forth a morality or a Christianity that is actually antithetical, actually opposite to grace found in the gospel. They, they believe that uh, you could believe in Je- you have to believe in Jesus, but also you must fulfill the ritual requirements of the Jewish law. And this stands, this stands against everything that is grace-based salvation. This would just I can imagine this making Paul's blood boil. He uses the term silence, and I don't think Paul was mincing his words here. He was asking for swift, swift silencing. False teachers threaten the health of the church, and it threatens the faith and maturity of disciples in that church, especially if they're new disciples, right? If the truth is what brings us closer to Christ and godliness, then anything that takes away from the truth takes us away from Christ and godliness. False teaching is a serious matter. In verses 12 and 14, it says this, One of Crete's own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, so that will be sound in, uh, so they will be sound in the faith that, and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to merely human commands of those who reject the truth. Paul was tapping to, as I said, Epimenides, one of Cretan's own philosophers, who admits that Cretans are generally deceitful people. And now this was a generalized statement, but this and doesn't mean that it's necessarily true for absolutely everyone. But Paul is showing here that even pagan culture deems that Cretans are evil. So if you are a Cretan and you claim to be a follower of Jesus, um, but we're doing opposite of that, you are clearly the most evil. And Paul tells them to. Paul tells the elders and Titus to rebuke them sharply. Not just because, not just rebuke them and leave them, but rebuke them in a way that would actually bring about sound faith. Now you can understand why that Paul wanted men who are not quick-tempered and not violent and who love what is good and is self-controlled. Because if someone was preaching something that was antithetical to the gospel and making people fall away or, or their faith was actually, being, um, was actually being impacted severely by this false doctrine, you can imagine how easily it would be to be, get emotional over it and want to just lash out against it because you want to see people grow in their faith. But Paul calls them to rebuke in a way that actually encourages the, the, the people who are, aren't of sound faith to have sound faith. It's easy for um, people to return to their old, old tendencies, and Paul was encouraging them to rebuke them in a way to get away from those old tendencies. In verses 15 and 16, he says, Paul goes on to say this, To the pure, all things are pure, 
But to those who are corrupt and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupt, corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Paul hearkens back to Mark 7 about what, what makes a person clean before God and what defiles them. Specifically, Mark 7, 20-23 says this, What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For what is what from for what for it is from within out of a person's heart that evil thoughts come: sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside a person and defile a person. Essentially, Paul is reminding Titus that once again, what makes a person unclean is not what they ex- they, they do necessarily but it's actually from the inside here. And by extension, Paul argues that rebellious people who try to clean themselves up in order to be righteous don't actually understand what the gospel is. They don't actually, they prove to themselves that they don't actually have a relationship with God, with Jesus. So you can see how dangerous false teaching is. But by God's grace, God has given a protection mechanism to shield the flock from such pernicious teaching. And if you're thinking, man, like, oh, man, this rebuking thing is like, sounds hard. It sounds, like, it sounds like I better not say anything, otherwise I'm going to get rebuked and called out for heresy here. It's like, well, no. Elders are primarily caring. We're not going to flex on you like that. We, it is our joy to see you grow in the Lord and become more like him. And yes, as you become more sanctified and grow in your knowledge of him, some sparks may fly as iron sharpens iron. There's nothing wrong with asking questions or not knowing something or unwillingly knowing, saying something that is not based in the gospel. And even if you're being sinful and wayward, the elder's job is to gently and lovingly rebuke you and point you to the goodness and sufficiency of the gospel. But if false teachers rises in the church and pushes people away from refining their rest in Jesus, especially if it's causing dissension, and disunity, we will not hesitate to rebuke and restore because we want to build up a healthy church with healthy disciples for your good and for God's glory. And to be honest, I really hope that this doesn't, that this, this doesn't happen, have to happen at this church, but it is an unfortunate reality that it does happen. And we'd be foolish to think that the enemy would not want to try here. Biblical eldership is a really, really important thing. Um, at my previous church before coming to City Light, I just want to share just a quick story. Um, I remember in youth group, I had a guy leading it, and uh, he, uh, we, didn't have, we didn't have an eldership at church. We had like the pastor, and that was pretty much it. And uh, I remember this guy was fun, energetic, he would open up scripture, and I would read it, and it, was, it would kind of make sense. I think I was about like 15 or so, but I'm, I wouldn't say my faith was super mature, uh, I, think I, under, I think I understood grace then, but wasn't absolutely sure. And over time, over about six to 12 months, some, some stuff would start to happen and some teaching would come in and it would sound a bit iffy. Yes, Jesus died for you, but you must do this thing. Yes, Jesus died for you, but you can't do this thing. Yes, Jesus died for you, and if you don't do this thing, therefore, uh, if, yes, Jesus died for you, but you must do this thing in order for Jesus to accept you. 
I started to think, like, what, what is going on here? And I, it sounded really antithetical to the gospel. And it turns out that it was actually a form of legalism, that I had to perform to, for Jesus to love me. It's, but, it's, but he was opening up scripture, right? It's, it's, it, he was bringing it up and like, well, this is, this is how you read it and stuff. But it, it, wasn't, it didn't re- reflect the person and work of Jesus. And I'm really, really glad that God was the one that held um, the church together because in that time, like, I don't know what would have happened if he didn't. But this is why we need biblical eldership to protect God's people. It's for our good and for our joy. So what does this all mean for us? I know we've spent like the last 30, 40 minutes talking about this. What does this mean for us? Well, two things here at Adelaide, North Adelaide. I'm pretty sure that most of us, if we're here today, in this young church plant, we want to be a healthy church with healthy disciples, right? Firstly, we must, the first thing we need to do is we must look at the truth. We need to look at the truth. We must keep our eyes peeled on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's that relationship that changes us. He's, and the thing is, God has not called you to do this alone. He's called you into a body to do it with, to bear each other's burdens, to love, to do all the 50 or so one another, love one, another, one another's to each other. God has called you into a local body to be a part with. And that, and that body must have leadership that encourages and corrects when necessary and push you towards the face of Jesus. If you call yourself a member of Sidlite family, or if you call this your home, this is an expectation that you can have for your elders and elder candidates to push you towards Jesus. And if you're not looking, if you're new here, or if you're looking for a church, or if you're not from around, uh, you, and you are looking for some something else, I would encourage you to find a, a, a church with elders that will push you towards Jesus who will invest in you and sow in you the, life, um, the, the knowledge that will lead to life. So the first thing is that we must look at truth. And secondly, we, as, a, as a congregation here, we must work in partnership with the leadership of the church. In Australia, we, I know that we have a leadership complex called tall poppy syndrome. Um, I don't know, we don't really love our leaders, Right? We don't really respect them. We think they're better than us. We think we're all about the fair go. Everyone's on the same playing field. We, have, we, we call our Prime Minister ScoMo. <laughs> um, at City Light North Adelaide, I will be the first to admit that our, the relationship with elders in the past has not been rock solid, as rock solid as they could be. Partly because of the, un- because of the unstable nature of this, of this church and, this, and um, because we don't really have... A, a, Beforehand, we didn't really have a, a local leadership. Um, but I, I'm asking us is to be aware of our natural predisposition, natural suspicion towards leaders, because it might interact, it might inter, it might affect the way we interact with our leaders, with our elders. Right? I, for one, as an elder candidate, and I would say for all our elder candidates as well, and as well as for Simon. Uh, I want our elders and me to grow in our intimacy with you. Because we've, I feel like the elders have been charged to, to shepherd the people. So to do that, we need to, we need, we need to be involved in your lives and we need um, you to be involved in our lives. 
I don't think it's a coincidence right now that our eldership candidate, elder candidates right now, of all, all of them are discipleship group leaders. As an elder candidate myself, I want, to know, I want you to know that we care deeply for your soul and your walk with God. And as this place grows, the elders, elders are here not to just love and serve you, but to lead you and direct you, to direct this church in a way that we think that God is leading, leading us. But to do this, there must be a degree of trust. To do this dance between us, between the, between the, the, the congregation and the eldership, we have to have trust. And this doesn't mean that you can't question things or things aren't up for discussion. In fact, we, we want you to be involved in the life of the church. But the only way to build up trust is to have deep fellowship with one another that is based and built on the love of Christ. And this is going to be hard, especially as this place grows God willing, right? But my hope and prayer is that as elders, as the elders here or elder candidates put their lives up for display, as you are involved in our lives and we're involved in your lives, that we can learn to trust one another for God's glory. And I'm preaching this more to myself than anything else. I'm acutely aware of my own shortcomings. And I guess as an elder candidate, I can say that amongst them, uh, all of them, like none of us, this is not a grab for power or authority or popularity. I feel like all, however, I feel like all the older candidates and the elders, um, we, are, we are doing this because we have been ransomed by God. We can't shake off the glad burden that we have for seeing people, for seeing, for seeing you grow in your relationship with Jesus, to come to know him more, to grow in Christ-likeness. And it's something I hope to do for the rest of my days, whether it be an elder or not. I think from Titus 1 here that God, I, I hope, uh, um, and I, want, I think God is asking that us as elders, but also as members here, everyone in this church do have a laser-like focus on who Jesus is. I hope that the, I, want, I would want to see, and I think God wants us to see the beauty of gospel eldership that Titus lays out here, because they want, I, think, I believe that Titus, uh, Paul uh, wants um, uh, elders to have a father-like impact here as, as a family here. I want as elders and elder candidates that we be so caring and loving that each one of you know that your soul has been prayed for and cared for and for you to actually feel that tangibly. And I want this church and its disciples to be so obsessed about the glory of God and knowing who Christ is because that's what transforms us. And I hope that that transformation makes us all like beasts for God's kingdom. The gospel is played out in this beautiful picture of elders serving Christ's bride in the church. And I hope that we can do that together. Let's do that together, right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your word. Thank you for, um, I just pray personally thank you for the privilege that it is to serve your church. You've, um, by, your good, uh, by your goodness and by your uh, sovereignty, you have put in mechanisms for the growth of your people 
for the protection of your people. I pray that this doesn't become about just elders, but I pray that you be central to everything that we do. I pray that you help um, the leadership here to be Christ's focused, that we be able to point um, each other towards you. Um, as a congregation here, Lord Father, I just pray that you, um, that you remind us of the truth, that you use your intended mechanisms to grow us in the knowledge of who Jesus is, to help us to become like you. Uh, you we know that you've called and redeemed us. Continue to do that work in us, Lord Father, and help us to willingly submit to that because it is it's so joyful knowing you. Help us as we do this together as a family. And we pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.